Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Spencer Pelton. Spencer is the Wyoming State Archaeologist and an adjunct professor of anthropology at the University of Wyoming. He's interested in the prehistoric archaeology of Wyoming and the Rocky Mountain West, with an emphasis on the archaeology of the Paleolithic. We talk about subjects ranging from the modern human expansion out of Africa to ethnographic research in Mongolia and Paleo-Indian red ochre mines, to name a few. My name is Sebastian Weatherby, and this is The Tell. Hey, Spencer. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? So I've known about your work for a while, your, your work as the Wyoming State Archaeologist. And generally, I know you're interested in Paleo-Indian archaeology, so Ice Age North America, ancient hunter-gatherers in Wyoming. But reading your dissertation, it betrayed that you actually have a very global set of interests in terms of the Paleolithic um, and a lot of interest in the expansion of anatomically modern humans around the world. So I was wondering, what is to you, um, what is the, the unifying thread between those two interests that uh, connects them for you? I think the unifying thread between them is, is you know, I'm interested in finding universal human process. Uh, how do humans behave? What's, what's, the, what's human nature? Mm-hmm. How do humans... Um, respond predictably to a number of environmental stimuli. So I, I take that same approach into both of those kind of research realms. Um, I do find it hard to balance, I guess. I, I find it hard be, primarily because I love doing archaeological field work. And so I find I spend all my time dealing with that, doing field work, curating artifacts, reporting what we found. That's kind of like an imperative for that. And so getting into these kind of higher level theoretical concepts and trying to publish on that stuff while at the same time maintaining an active field work agenda is probably the most difficult thing to balance. Right. Uh, you know, my, I decided to do a topic like that for my dissertation because I, I kind of thought, you know, this is, this is the time to do it. You, if you want to tackle a big question, here's five years you have to kind of uh, think about things really deeply, develop ideas in a way that you might not necessarily be able to do once you get into a career, even, mm-hmm. even, if, it, uh, even if it's a teaching career, academic career. Uh, so I, I really wanted to yeah, develop those research interests during my, my dissertation, uh, really for the, the purpose that I didn't think I'd have another chance to do it. Yeah, yeah. If, if I had to sum it up and tell me if this, tell me if this sounds right, uh, is you were looking at how humans left Africa migrated across the globe in the Paleolithic, and, and you were thinking about how they adapted to the harsh, cold weather they faced along the way. And a, a big part of your work involved using principles from human behavioral ecology, or HBE, which I guess helped you uh, construct a model, right, for predicting uh, how ancient hunter-gatherers ought to react to different temperatures and how they should adapt to, to those. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say just more broadly how people in general respond to temperature. It's like yeah. HBE has been pretty concerned with primarily with what you eat. Uh, the, the decision variables in HBE models are oftentimes uh, based around what do you forage yeah. and when under varying environmental circumstances. I kind of wanted to take that similar idea and, and apply it to temperature. What, what decisions do you make? Yeah. at varying temperatures and, and how universal is that between human cultures and, and how, did that, how did those decisions shape the trajectory of, of modern human dispersal? What to you is the, what, what drew, drew you to human behavioral ecology in the first place as a lens for 
uh, for thinking about uh, the past. It's uh, one of the only approaches that allows you to create defined expectations for the world that have predictive power. And even if those models are dumb and ultimately all models are wrong, at least you have a defined set of principles against which you can evaluate the material record yeah. and, and, uh, and that, that form a baseline from which you can actually build some, some semblance of truth from. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that, that's really why I wanted to, to, get, to get into that kind of theoretical realm. Going off that point, would you mind if I read you a quote? Uh, because this, and sorry, it's a little wordy, uh, it made me think about why archaeology needs objectivity, why it, it needs an approach that at least moves us in the direction of objectivity. So here it is. Um, it has been the failure of the social sciences to develop a robust body of principles serving the methodological needs of the fields in question. This failure has doomed those alleged sciences to endless paradigmatic debate and endless stylistic replacements of one theory by another, largely in response to sociological characteristics within the discipline and in step with simple rates of generational replacement within the academy. That's uh, Lewis Binford. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. A, I, I don't think I've read that one, but that's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's kind of how anthropology kind of got trapped in that cycle, I think, probably starting in you know, the 80s or 90s where um, I think what's left out of that is it's also really subject to the politics du jour. So you can kind of see these, these really popular models of how to explain the past emerging in lockstep with major political trends. I would argue right now it's, it's climate change, honestly. Everybody wants to try to frame their interpretations of, of human behavior or the the uh, functioning of Get that ancient societies <laughs> in terms of climate change, right? Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's true in some cases, but I think entering into, entering into the, the process of science with these kind of uh, ultimately transient ideas rel- that are inextricably related to the, so- the politics of whatever society you're living in, it, it kind of ends up being dead ends and you end up starting over mm-hmm. again. You end up, in, like, like Benford was saying, in these kind of loops and you never, you never move forward. You just kind of you, you just kind of rehash the same debates over and over again. Yeah. And yeah. Absolutely, I think HB is one, one approach to kind of escaping that. So in your dissertation, you break up the human migrations out of Africa and the Paleolithic into three big stages, really. Uh, why did you divide them that way? What did you see as being the three big steps? So the first stage I see as people leaving Africa without having to adopt adaptations to extremely cold temperatures. And I did some pretty basic kind of environmental modeling to show that you could feasibly walk from Africa around uh, the Indian Ocean into Indonesia, Sahul, Sunda and Sahul, mm-hmm. without ever having to develop complex clothing or houses. Or you could be naked and homeless is the way I talk about, talk <laughs> about it. And we're talking about, what, 70,000 years ago? I think I placed it in my dissertation around you know, 70 to 80,000 years ago, something like that. Because mm-hmm. we know people were in Australia at this point, at least 50 to 60,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it would have been this kind of initial wave that uh, rather than kind of forming this front that just kind of expanded continuously across the Eurasian continent, 
it really conformed to these thermal clines that existed along the coast of the Indian Ocean and, so and, draw, and drew people into Australia. So they're really being kept at bay by the uh, more extreme weather conditions right, that, in like, northern so part the, of Eurasia. The decision variable there is, is pretty simple. Do you keep moving in these places where you can remain naked and homeless, mm-hmm. or do you adopt these really costly technologies to expand into colder places? And in my mind, the decision in that case is really simple. You, you don't intensify your technology. You keep in places where you can, you can keep foraging without these costs, and you keep moving along those thermal clines. And then, you know, then once you get to Southeast Asia, it, it just gets warmer from there, right? You can move south into Sunda, Suhul, eventually Australia. And that is, that's what I see as the first wave of, of global human dispersal. But so if people are avoiding taking on these costly uh, technologies and behavioral adaptations to being able to live in colder weather, what, it, what then would force them to start moving into colder areas and adopting some of these practices if it wasn't very convenient in the first place? Um, uh, I think population density yeah. would be my suspicion. Yeah. Once you fill up those spaces that are, that are easiest to, to inhabit, uh, then there's nowhere else to move, and you got to start moving in other places and take on those technological challenges. Mm-hmm. That'd be my that'd be my guess. So that that would lead into the second phase, which is I, the way I see it is the um, the movement of modern humans up through uh, Eurasia. So uh, probably first uh, radiating into Eastern Eurasia in the areas like uh, Lake Baikal region. Uh, call it, I think they call it the Trans-Altai region, mm-hmm. and then eventually moving into to Western Eurasia and, and replacing Neanderthals, whenever the date is now, somewhere around 40,000 years ago. Oh, so people actually get to get to Central Asia before they get to, say, uh, the, the, the timeline looks like that to me, yeah. is to my recollection. Like some of the earliest upper, what we recognize as upper Paleolithic sites are not in in uh, Western Eurasia, not in yeah. you know, places like Spain, France, these kind of like famous Germany, these famous upper Paleolithic sites actually emerge seemingly a little earlier in, in the Eastern part of, of the Eurasian continent. And then, cause you know, really the last Neanderthal skeletons we have come from right, like Spain, Portugal, the Gibraltar region, right? So it's yeah. kind of the last, the last stand of that, that life way. It, what do the people moving into colder climates have at this point that they don't appear to have prior or that say neanderthals or other hominins who are in those areas don't seem to have what's setting them apart what what's what's giving them access to that sudden new space uh i think two primary things that we can see archaeologically the first is is complex garments Mm -hmm. um complex fitted garments i should specify so the, the most widespread evidence, the thing that's most widely cited for that is bone needles show mm-hmm. up at this time. Um, also, you see it in, uh, say, carved figurines and things like that. You see hats. And right, you like get that. to see some direct evidence of what, they're, what kind of clothing they're wearing. So th- the advantage of that, and I think the, uh, the advantage that modern humans had over Neanderthals in that regard is when you have complex fitted garments, you, it's not that you can survive those temperatures, it's that you can thrive in them. So you can remain foraging on the landscape, hunting and gathering yeah. for a longer duration of each year 
uh, when you have these complex fitted garments, when, uh, when you, if you did not have those technologies, you would basically have to be holed up in, in a dwelling or a cave or, or whatever. And right, so you might be surviving the weather, but you're not exactly using your time very well at that point. Exactly. And that's why I think, uh, for instance, you know, Neanderthals, there's all this evidence for uh, seasonal stressors in, in their skeletal remains, for like things like Harris lines and mammal hypoplasia. Oh, really? And my suspicion huh. is that that's these annual times of dietary and physiological stress that occur during the winter when they're basically kind of having to hole up right. and, and subsist off of very sparse resources, um, uh, have to keep themselves warm against really extremely cold temperatures and that kind of thing. And it's extremely stressful and you can, you can see that, uh, bioarchaeologically. So and yeah, for, for like the Neanderthals, we're not seeing the same kind of, uh, building of like complex freestanding structures and things like that. Right. So that's, that's the second technology I think. And I think, um, more controversially, I think houses emerge alongside this this second wave of modern human dispersal in yeah. Eurasia. Yeah. Before you before the Upper Paleolithic in Eurasia, uh, associated with anatomically modern humans, there really is no evidence at all, either in Africa or Eurasia, for freestanding houses. Uh, what freestanding houses did was it enabled um, anatomically modern humans to expand into environments that were previously uninhabitable by archaic hominids. Because right, otherwise you need a cave or need a, cave. a lean-to or something, basically, right? A rock shelter. You essentially need, a, need the geothermal properties of a cave to withstand right. some of these temperatures, and, and so therefore you're, you're bound to mountainous regions mainly mm-hmm. that, that have those environments, whereas when you start developing freestanding structures, you can start expanding out into, the say, like the plains of... Uh, of uh, Ukraine and Russia, things yeah. like that, and expanded the niche considerably, allowed people to hunt um, a greater diversity of fauna, pursue those fauna for longer durations of each year. And, uh, and uh, I think the ultimate outcome of that was anatomically modern humans were just able to sustain larger po- population growth numbers than yeah. Neanderthals could. And so eventually that led to them- they just swamped su- eventually. Supplanting, yeah, those, yeah. those genetics. Yeah, probably a lot of people don't don't know this about caves that um, they basically hover at the annual mean temperature for wherever they're located. So mm-hmm. in the summer you go inside and they're cool and they're like fifty degrees, and then in the winter you go inside and it's a lot warmer at fifty degrees. Um, yeah, caves are remarkable for that. I I think this is kind of apart from the dispersal question, but I I suspect that they had a similar role in in sub-Saharan Africa as well mm-hmm. in moderating some of the extremely warm temperatures that people or our ancient um ancient hominid ancestors experienced in those places so you could you could central place forage from these things and um, bash up a bunch of bones in the middle of the day when it's right. whatever 110 degrees out and and do that for a longer period of time without suffering from heat related thermal stress so yeah i guess just to wrap that up i mean I, the the two big things i think were clothing and how and housing and then both both of those things probably had pretty dramatic ripple effects um obviously houses are not just you know thermal cocoons they serve <laughs> a lot of other kind of symbolic and social yeah social um yeah that was an interesting thing you you got into was how the emergence of houses might be connected to the emergence of like family units as like a uh um I guess just sort of a system of maintaining social organization, something like that. Yeah, that's that's uh, you know you have this old idea that's really much 
uh, not popular these days, but that I still kind of adhere to. It's called the Upper Paleolithic Cultural Revolution. Is Richard Klein, I think, yeah. penned it. And and since then, we've recognized, you know, modern human cognition certainly evolved in Africa and was present for a long time before hominins expanded into Eurasia. Yeah. But yeah. I, I still think it's it's undeniable that there's this fluorescence of what we recognize as quote-unquote culture that occurs alongside this modern human expansion in Eurasia. Things like cave yeah. art and carved yeah. figurines. And so there's a couple of explanations for that. You know, the, the traditional one was that there was some cognitive leap at that time that allowed humans to do that. I don't think that's true. Right. The so other then thing, that leaves a cultural So then it leaves leap, a cultural right. thing. And, and Klein recognized this pretty, pretty early. But uh, I, I see the formation of nuclear family units as sort of a, a social leap that could contribute to that thing, primarily because it allows, um, it, it basically allows your culture to scale up because uh, your, your, uh, your basic unit of your society is no longer an individual, it's a family unit. And so from that, complexity kind of scales up and, and allows just an overall uh, fluorescence of, of complexity uh, throughout your entire culture. That's something that your, your dissertation made me think about a lot, is how the emergence of those family structures could help explain, and, and I'm just spitballing, but it could help explain the placement of permanent art in places like the dark zones of caves, for instance, behind a 100-foot crawl and a climb down a narrow passage. Costly locations to access where, where art will last for thousands of years. If, if there's a growing need for rites of passage and membership in social, family, and religious groups, and for ritual that that physically ties people to territories i would think that the emergence of shamanistic artistic and religious practices uh is connected that it could show a need for new religious structures that are kind of for the sake of social membership you know like this sort of this need to mediate these new more complicated sure uh, social systems yeah i mean you'd um, imagine as soon as you get as soon as you get nuclear family units then you are then you have nuclear family units that are related to each other. Yeah. Then you yeah. have, you know, some semblance of what you might call a clan or a tribe or something like that can, can kind of emerge from that. So, yeah, that, that's, what, that's kind of what I mean by scaling up, right? Like yeah. the, uh, once you have this basic social unit that basically takes your terminal unit of complexity from one individual to, you know, four to six as, as you're, that are operating as a cohesive economic entity that can create this whole other whole other realm of of what we recognize as culture and I, I i think that's what we're seeing with this this cultural revolution with things like yeah rock art in the dark zone of caves but also seemingly pretty um pretty predictable like raw material conveyance systems uh, emerge at this time um uh, carved figurines emerge at this time there's just for for people who don't know what that means what do you mean by the raw material can you just seem systems. to get you get um longer distance transport of things like ivory and chipstone raw material that seem to be fairly predictable and and regionalized so i guess would that maybe suggest people are becoming more more rooted to specific areas and they're building long-term connections with uh yeah ter territoriality more or less yeah yeah I, and, but yeah you know it's i know it's a stretch and it's like kind of like connecting the disparate <laughs> things with like the string on the wall or whatever. But I do, I really do think that before you have any sort of that complexity in human cultures, you have to have a stable kind of family economic unit at, at the, at the base of it. Okay. This is a, 
this is kind of a related topic. It's one that I've been obsessed with for a while. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think about it. It's uh, There's this common narrative in archaeology about the, quote, birth of inequality, um, that there's, there's a sort of fall from Eden that takes place at some point in prehistory where we go from egalitarian, enlightened hunter-gatherers to, to, to cruel, hierarchical agriculturalists and pastoralists. And I think it relies on the idea that the only kind of capital you can hoard is material. That unless I have a richer grave than you, or a bigger house, or more things, there can't be any inequality. But, but then I think of a religious figure, for instance, who might be both celibate and also eschew material possessions, but who still wields a lot of charismatic authority in society. And, and, and I have a hard time believing that Paleolithic societies were as equal as we think. So I, I guess my question is, do you think, do you think inequality starts in <laughs> the Neolithic? Do you think there's a, a way to look at it? Oh. In, in the Paleolithic, no, it's a good, it's a good question. Let me try to wrap my head around. It. So, yeah. <laughs> I think, I, I personally think, yeah, inequality in in a sense has always existed between people because people are, uh, people are genetically diverse, and some people are born with innate characteristics that make them more useful in the context of a hunter gatherer society than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I don't think that there's ever been a time when let's just call it like interpersonal inequality has never existed. And in the absence of any kind of like social system to rectify these things, there will always be more talented hunters, for instance. There will always be more talented orators. These things all require skills, and and some people are born with innate abilities that that allow them to have a leverage over other people around them. And I don't think that's ever going to change it, and it's never not been the case. I think... The inequality that most people are referring to when when they think about it is basically um, some people in a society, uh, you know, to quote Marx, I guess, <laughs> control control the means of production over others, and that yeah, kind of amplifies yeah. that amplifies um, I- inequalities on the basis of, of right, so really exchange it's goods, economic, yeah, and the- e- economic inequality. I think in the traditional sense, when I hear people say that inequality didn't emerge until until basically you get um, commodity-based economies. Uh, I guess that's true in a way, but it's, it, there is no hope in my mind of erasing all inequality. It's always going to exist, and the best we can do is just uh, cope with it and make people's lives that ended up on the short end of that stick yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, tolerable or, or uh, at least easy. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Related to the, the emergence of social complexity thing, I, I don't think... I don't really see that, you know, the formation of these complex, more complex social systems during the Upper Paleolithic. I don't really know if that would have amplified inequality that much. I, mm-hmm. I don't have a good sense of that. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Uh, my my sense from just reading hunter gatherer literature is they still, you know, the least of them were always at least taken care of yeah, in, in an yeah. economic sense. You know, they might they might not have had as many, for instance, like mating opportunities. It's pretty well documented. Mm-hmm. And opportunities to carry on their genetic heritage, but uh, I don't think that they were necessarily shunned or suffering as much as say like yeah. the least of us in, in right. modern society do. Okay, so to get us back on track after those segues, we've talked about the first two stages of migration out of Africa: first, following the thermal climes along the rim of the Indian Ocean, and then moving north into the bitter cold of Eurasia. So, what's the third step? Uh, number three is colonization of the New World. 
Um, during that second stage, it took a while. Probably, you know, modern humans enter Eurasia about probably 45,000 years ago. They kind of slowly expand towards the north and east across Eurasia until probably around 20,000 years ago when they reached this exposed landmass called Beringia. It connects Eurasia to North America. Yeah, um, right in between modern day Alaska and uh, Siberia in the, yep. the Bering Sea. So once they get there, they hit, this is, you know, my interpretation of what happens. This is, you know, this is, we're getting too close to home now, right? <laughs> but once they hit Alaska, they hang out there for a little while. And then uh, sometime around, you know, 14,000 years ago, uh, they enter North America, south of the ice sheets. Uh, the difference in this stage of, of uh, global human dispersal, in my mind, from, from a thermoregulatory perspective, is that things got easier for the first time in tens right. of thousands of years. That was something I hadn't really thought about until I read your dissertation, was when thinking about colonization of the New World, and I would picture models of, of, of people expanding over the landscape slowly. I was always... I didn't include the fact that people have a reason to go south. It gets easier. It gets better the further south you go, right? Um, yeah, it does. Until you hit the equator, at least, right? Yeah, uh, I kind of think about this. So this is a good example of um, the marriage of kind of classical HBU models in this. Is this this ideal free distribution model where uh, when when an animal enters a new landscape for the first time, it should theoretically always seek out the best patch in that landscape yeah. first. Yeah. And traditional HBU models, that's defined in terms of like the caloric yield you can get from that patch. From a, from a thermoregulatory model, that means essentially the warmest place. Uh, so I, I envision this process not as this kind of wave coming from the ice-free corridor or wherever south, mm -hmm. but people moving as quickly as they could down to, say, Texas or Mexico, uh, places like that that are yeah. super warm. And all of a sudden, um, these hunter-gatherers that were bundled up and parkas living in really sophisticated robust housing for tens of thousands of years they could suddenly live uh you know naked and homeless again <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have the they didn't have the uh the cost of producing these really sophisticated technologies to cope with weather anymore they could just live be hunter gatherers and i i kind of see the expansion of uh of of modern humans in the new world occurring from these more uh temperate or, or uh, closer to the equator kind of regions and then moving outward from there the last places to be colonized being say like the you know the altiplano the andes um, right since then you're you're going back into the cold the laramie valley it. probably wyoming <laughs> in general <laughs> about the last place anybody yeah. wants to live if you're yeah. a hunter-gatherer um so I, that's how i see that process happening so whereas it really was kind of a wave in eurasia people kind of moving north and north developing more sophisticated technologies as they went as soon as you hit the new world, you just move to the best place possible and then grow your population from there. Yeah. So then that would be, I guess, um, w whether or not people are traveling down the coast in boats, that would be an alternative explanation for why people are sticking to the coasts is on the one hand, there's this, there's a sort of story of people following like a kelp highway and like these productive maritime resources but then but this would this would explain the same kind of pattern yeah based more on temperature regulation it, and it the ease of it. living there 
right? It explains that distribution. I, for, well, first, I, I don't really think there is significantly denser early Paleo-Indian sites on the coast site, mm-hmm. but it, uh, temperature could explain that independently of kind of like a coastal adaptation. It's just coasts are, you know, they're at sea level, so right. they're, they're warmer. Yeah, and there's that uh, oceanic regulation. Mm-hmm, yeah. So this would just be another reason to expect that they would, they would kind of cluster along coastlines because of the uh, milder annual temperatures. Yeah, and and to be clear, like I I don't think the temperature rules all in these kind of models, right? Like yeah, the yeah. most ideal place to live is some combination of of temperature. I think we have to acknowledge that, but it's also the resource base that you have around you. So yeah, y- yeah. you could live in for like tropical regions, for instance, relatively pauperate of of like large game. Yeah, and and so you wouldn't necessarily want to settle down in in a tropical region where you know it's nice to be naked and homeless there. It's beautiful, but you got you got to subsist off of like monkeys or something right. instead of <laughs> instead of like mammoths and bison things like that. Yeah. So there's a sweet spot there. I suspect it was the Tennessee River Valley. The 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 density of the density of artifacts of early Paleo Indian artifacts in the Tennessee River Valley is remarkable. It's just orders of magnitude higher than anywhere else in the country. One of the things you read, wrote about in your dissertation is uh, some field work that you did in Mongolia. Mm-hmm. And it's not really, I think, what people would expect of an archaeologist because you were doing ethnographic field work with uh, reindeer herders in northern Mongolia, right? Yeah, correct. What, the, the Doha. This is, yeah, it's all Todd, Todd Suravel's project. What was the point of that? Why were you... Why are you working with living people in Mongolia when you're thinking about Ice Age people in North America and their expansion out of Africa and all that? Uh, Todd's the person to ask about this. Uh, Todd Servalt, you know, started this project, but I can kind of summarize his thinking probably on the subject. Is um, uh, ethnoarchaeology has typically been done by studying the remains of of modern peoples, making archaeological analogs from those remains, mm-hmm. but um, is Todd's thinking that you know modern people just don't deposit very much trash. We're using metal objects, things that can be recycled really easily. We're not dropping chipstone everywhere. Right. So rather than study material remains, we should study just how people do things in mobile campsites uh, according to some really basic environmental parameters. So like light and, and temperature are the two big ones. And also proximity to these kind of hot spots, like entrances of doorways and wood piles, like work areas, things like that. So for for my purposes, my with thermoregulation, I was really interested in just um, one: how do people, what kind of toolkits do people maintain now? Mo- mobile people maintain now to cope with temperature. Yeah. What do they have? What do they keep on them to sew? Uh, what do they keep on them to process hide? Those, yeah. Those two big things. So I I did some of that. I observed people processing hides and sewing collected all sorts of nerdy quantitative data on that stuff. Uh, but the other thing was just um, observing how people change their behavior according to temperature. And that was done through uh, observations of people inside houses and then also um, time-lapse photography of people outside houses. What was it, what was it like working in Mongolia what, day-to-day? Like? Well, I loved it. I thought... I was about to buy a yak and just stay over there. <laughs> uh, it's just, I mean, some of the last kind of like truly free people in the world is the way I felt. I mean, people that are self-sufficient, more or less self-sufficient on their animals. 
could more or less move anywhere they wanted. Um, they were all extremely happy, seemingly extremely happy, even though they're you know, economically fairly poor. Uh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Uh, the day-to-day of it, you know, it's, it was um, a lot of reading. Yeah. Uh, basically, the, da- the daily task was get up, try to start a fire in your house from your sleeping bag because it was super cold, <laughs> get out, change the batteries and the, the cameras, yeah. make some breakfast, lay around for a while. <laughs> what do the Mongolians think of you guys being there? Like, um, um they're they're friends, you know. I mean, they they're just kind of like living with your, <laughs> living with your friends in a campsite. Yeah. Uh, we helped out with with chores around camp, with deer maintenance and splitting wood, and just yeah. kind of living in the campsite. I mean, we did things. The two big things you do is you you know. You, you have these time-lapse cameras, you got to replace that every day, and then you randomly go into houses throughout the camp for 20 minutes at a time, and every minute record where people are in the house and what they're doing. It's mm-hmm. kind of a document of activities in the house. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of came in late to the project, so they were completely used to that by the time we got there. I'd imagine it was a little weird once Todd started trying to, <laughs> trying to go in and, and do that, but I think, I think they got used to it. And, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we and then every night we would, you know, uh, upload the photos from the time lapse camera and and like you know show show families like the photos of their camp and it was just kind of a fun sitting around laughing at people uh, doing crazy stuff outside. People would pose for the camera sometimes, you know, yeah. And like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then other, I mean, we would do hikes around, um, just around the camp, and yeah, it was just really fun. It's uh, beautiful, beautiful country. I've seen photos of the project, and, and I've surveyed and excavated in Mongolia, and it, it really does seem like a cold, rough place to be a hunter-gatherer, and it makes me think about how, how necessary good social systems like family units, to go back to what we talked about earlier, how necessary those would be. For, for hunter-gatherers, generally, there's this phrase of fusion-fission mm-hmm. uh, for dealing with, with social issues, right? Where, like, if you have fights or serious disagreements in a hunter-gatherer camp, uh, a chunk of that group can just get up and walk away to a new campsite. And so you can, you can diffuse tensions partially through movement. Yeah. But, but if you're in the middle of the, uh, if you're in the middle of the Altai mountains in the winter, it's kind of hard to just pick up and walk away at a moment's notice. Right. Oh, for sure. I mean, you're, so you're kind of, you're, you're kind of forced to be, to be able to mediate a little better. Exactly. I mean, I, that's completely that's completely true, I think. I mean, I, I think it's part of the reason why Mongolian conversation is just a series of jokes. <laughs> it's basically like, um, you know, you're forced inside with, these, with your immediate family and maybe some extended cousins or something for, yeah. for months at a time. So you just need a way to keep the tension down. <laughs> you have to have a way to alleviate those, yeah. those like small tensions that develop between people. And... and uh, yeah, it's and it's through jokes and storytelling and, and things like that, things that that uh, create a, an air of levity within what's kind of a stressful situation. I mean, I I couldn't imagine being inside a house that big with with my family for right, that long. You know, potentially like an extended family, right? Like yeah, just like a people that you mom might and not pop even, and two kids, but like people might, you might not grandma, even like grandpa that much. and cousins and yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it really drove home that that notion to me that developing these tight knit sort of nuclear family units is 
is really crucial to surviving in these in these environments and, yeah. and houses really kind of force it upon you and force you to come up with yeah. novel ways to negotiate those relationships stuck in that small space the thing that got me thinking about this i honestly was like living in laramie and knowing a lot of people that live say in like the mountains of colorado and you got to have hobbies yeah. you, you got to yeah, have indoor hobbies to keep to keep your mind active or you go crazy i mean cab- cabin fever is a real thing it's like getting you know depression and going a little crazy because because you can't um stimulate your senses as well as you can when you're faced with the outside world so do do you think that's something that would uh i guess contribute to new sort of physical technologies like new types of tools or materials that people would make if if suddenly you've got a portion of the year where you're you have to sit inside for x amount of time and that time you don't want that time to go to waste you would you would expect new new types of tool working or yep. manufacture and things like that and uh people who might have more expertise in a given craft you would expect that to to happen right yeah i think it happens for a couple of reasons I mean, so for instance the the perfect example of that from the old world is these like intricate little figurines that you start seeing in upper paleolithic houses they're like birds yeah and little little uh like horses and stuff like that. It's the same thing people do now with carving those things. But it's also basically you're, you're placed in direct proximity with all these people doing these things, and you there's a greater chance of transmitting those ideas between people when you're confined in a space like that. And so I think you do get uh, you know a greater a greater probability of like material culture yeah. fluorescence <laughs> in, in a situation yeah. like that where ideas are constantly being exchanged and. A place like that. I wrote a, a paper a while back that nobody ever cites, but I'll try to promote it here. I, I think <laughs> I think like Folsom fluting, which is like as far as I can tell, does not have much of a functional reason, is probably an outgrowth of that. So basically, the the idea was that you find you find more fluted points in colder places on the plains. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing I think that you would do sitting around inside a house in the winter. Uh, is is mess around with foot napping and develop like novel techniques for doing that, and then maybe more attention to the aesthetics than you yeah. would otherwise be concerned with. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and when you look at the Folsom record, fluting looks like it does occur a lot inside houses. For people um, who don't know, also that's a uh, fluting. It's when you take a stone spear point and you uh, drive a flake off, basically from the base of the point out towards the tip, so you can slot it onto a spear or a shaft of a, a dart that kind of thing right yeah it's a it's an extremely risky form of flint napping is probably the best thing to know about it like <laughs> yeah about one in three times somebody tries this it fails and so really and it doesn't seem to provide any kind of functional advantage in terms of the hafting capabilities or anything it's just but it's really really cool looking <laughs> and uh and they're you know widely considered to be kind of the pinnacle of of stone age technology globally is, yeah is the Folsom point. Yeah. And, you know, Folsom is a, it's often characterized as a plains tradition, but it's really a Rocky Mountain tradition. Folsom sites are a Rocky Mountain kind yeah. of cultural adaptation in places. Yeah, the oldest site now being Barker Gulch, which is in right. Middle Park in right. Colorado. Um, Barker Gulch, great evidence for people fluting inside houses there. Yeah. And this is a, this is a site that's at what, like it's a, eight, thousand, eight to 9,000 feet? Yeah, it, Oh shoot! I should know that. It's and it's <laughs> low eight thousands, I think. And it's occupied during the Younger Dryas, like the coldest, tem- the coldest temperature interval in yeah. in the 
human occupation of the New World. Middle Park was likely a very, very cold place when people were living there, and they probably yeah. weren't spending a ton of time outside those houses. They were just holed up. Going back to how harsh of a place Mongolia can be in the winter and, and how friendly and hospitable Mongolians are, maybe as partially a consequence of that, um, I have a story to share. Of, uh, while I was on a field school in Mongolia during my undergrad, there was a, uh, a guy from Quebec who, during one of our lunch breaks, walked up to a random girl that he saw in the distance. And he just walked over to it and he knocked on the door and some old lady opened the door and he like talked with her for a minute and I couldn't hear what they were saying and then he walked inside. And then he came out a minute later with an old guy and got on the back of his motorcycle with him and just drove off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of... Probably had a really fun day. <laughs> it's kind of a shocking thing for people that are accustomed to like a world in which you don't just knock on somebody's door. Yeah. Like you, you could just, you know, you show up to somebody's house, knock on the door, and they usually invite you in for tea or whatever. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's great. I mean, I, the, the amount of trust that that culture must have uh, of, of each other is just is just so it was so foreign and so refreshing at the same time now now that the dissertation and the saga in mongolia are are completed what keeps you busy yeah that was kind of my that was my fun phd now i have a job <laughs> <laughs> but but luckily my job's really great um so I'm, the, I'm the state archaeologist for wyoming uh and so every state archaeologist kind of does things differently. They all have different mandates, different states. This job is very much focused on research, education. It's pretty rare for a state archaeologist, right? That's a pretty nice I'd say it's definitely nice in the gig. minority, yeah. Because uh, a lot of state archaeologists are not attached to academic institutions like this one is. Yeah. So it's re research, outreach, uh, education. So I teach at the university every few semesters. And then recently added on to that was a recovery of human remains from, from private and state lands in Wyoming. So archaeological human remains. Yeah, yeah. So the day-to-day -day of this is, you know, it's really diverse. I, I love it for that reason. But I'll, I usually do some writing on, on research stuff in the morning. Uh, uh, we're currently still conducting excavations at the Laprell Mammoth site, Clovis site. Um, I'm working on that. Um, and then we're involved with several other excavations throughout the state, more late prehistoric stuff. So we've got, we did excavations at Medicine Lodge Creek, a really well-known late prehistoric site in northern Wyoming last summer, dealing with that stuff. We're trying to put together a book on ceramics, um, kind of a is kind of a complete U-turn for me, but it's more or less like a, a culture history of the last 1,500 years in Wyoming based on ceramic types and where they're found and how old they are and that kind of thing. And then, uh, yeah, working on several other excavations throughout the state. Yeah, the one that I am kind of most aware of is uh, Powers. Yeah, so um, I, I worked since, since graduating with my dissertation been wrapping up field work at two paleo Indian sites. One of them is Powers II, the other one's called the Sisters Hill site. Uh, so I finished up excavations at Powers 2 in 2021. Uh, no, 2020. Sorry, lost a year there. <laughs> and I actually, I We've just, all done that. <laughs> I just submitted, just submitted some, uh, some research for that. that Powers 2 site is um, it's a hematite quarry. It's, one of, it's the only hematite quarry identified from North America, north of Mexico. So red ochre. Red ochre, yeah. It's paint. It's a paint mine. Yeah. Um, the cool thing about this paint mine is it's, it's the oldest one in the Americas that's been discovered so far, which is 10,000 plus, right? Yeah. Cal it calibrated. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, basically 
the tail the tail end of Clovis through about uh, about uh you know eleven thousand five something like that. So basically, just younger Dryas aged. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the cool thing about it too is that um, people actually sat on this quarry and and did a lot of flint napping, did a lot of weaponry repair. So it's just full of really awesome artifacts. Yeah, I thought, I, I kind of remember hearing at some point that it had some stupid number of Clovis points that had come out of it, right? Um, yeah, we're up to. 80 or 90 something like that <laughs> like from our excavations alone which were just six square meters we found um 30 projectile points Jeez. so it's like five you know five per square meter yeah it's crazy dense and it, it's not just points though there's like also you know there's a ton of flakes people are flint napping there there's really interesting bone tools that were used as quarry implements it turns out so there's we found pieces of antler that had been blunted at the end from like prying up rocks Big segments of ribs with blunted ends that were used to quarry big, big bison long bones that had been That's like so cool. spirally fractured, and then those like sharp edges of the bone were used to chip into the hematite. And then we found a piece of a bone rod, which is like a pretty classic kind of Clovis artifact that was used in presumably in hafting. And then this really weird um, uh, there's a there's a kind of two episodes of occupation there. This earlier one that's associated with the Younger Dryas, and then this later kind of stem point occupation. So the stem point occupation had to dig through the quarry tailings of that earlier occupation to get to the hematite. Yeah, and they actually in the process when they they, they like backfilled those quarry pits and left these little piles of artifacts in it, and they were all points and bifaces, and and one of those artifacts was this incised bison rib that kind of looks like a ruler. Huh. It's like 50 incisions with every fourth, fourth or fifth one has a little bit longer than the other. Super odd artifact, yeah. completely unique in the Paleo-Indian record. And just, it was just crazy when that thing came out of the ground. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty wild. Jeez. So that, that's Powers too. It's it's a truly, truly unique site. Um, and and you, can, you can trace the ochre from Powers too other places around Wyoming, right? Yeah, the only the only two places that have been directly sourced are the Laprell Clovis site. It's about eighty kilometers away. Yeah. And then the Hell Gap site, which is just right over the hill. But mm-hmm. ochre's been found in a ton of sites of this age in Wyoming. Um the Carter Kerr McGee site, the Sheeman site, Agate Basin site. And, you know, the Anzic the Anzic burial, the Anzic Clovis child, um, was covered in red ochre. And we haven't sourced any of the ochre from those sites yet, but I'm really excited at some point in the future to try to do that because I, I do think that this particular hematite source likely had a pretty pretty widespread distribution during this period because we, we have raw materials at this site from from North Dakota, and then it looks like we have some stuff from Texas, Alabates, and, and Edwards Chert, so that's you know, 1,200 kilometers away. Crazy, crazy uh, conveyance distance. Yeah, you know, it, I think it's likely that ochre was moving a long ways, and it was really a, uh, it, there's ochre sources in a lot of places, but uh, this sort of ochre, this hematite, is not all that common. It's associated specifically with um, you know, massive iron deposits, hmm. and there's just not many of those in, in in the continent. So there's only so many places where that stuff could come from. Uh, beyond that, so Sisters Hill site is another one we worked on. It's a it was known as a Hell Gap site, so about 11,500 years old or so. And then we went back a few years ago and found another slightly younger component above it that was missed back in the 70s. So we spent 
um, several years digging at that site. And really the, the value of that one is it's just a great stratigraphic record. It has this super, there's just a lot of fidelity to the, to this alluvial sequence and it yeah. positions these cultures really well with relation to the environment um, that they were going through. Kind of this, the very end of the Pleistocene, very earliest Holocene. And uh, when, when the environment was changing really rapidly and we have these, these two really nice cultural occupations kind of right in with that situated really well mm-hmm. with the environmental record. Here's kind of a tangential question to start wrapping things up. Um, going forward, if you could work anywhere answering any questions and you didn't have any obstacles like permits, et cetera. What are the big questions to you that kind of keep you up at night in archaeology? Globally? Um, yeah, yeah, anywhere. Uh, I mean, if I could do anything in global archaeology, I would be looking for upper Paleolithic sites at the extreme far northern margin of Siberia, I think. Kind of that Yana, Rhinohorn site kind of zone. I think up there, and then, you know, south into, like, the Trans-Baikal region, too. Yeah. I, I really think that, that that region is super special. And there's a lot of great people doing research over there on, like, Denisova Cave and that stuff. But I just really feel like that's the most exciting place in the world to do, to do hunter-gatherer archaeology. Or, you know, it, ultimately, it's, it's the hearth of the people that ended up in the New World. Right. It's, it's the yeah. ancestors. You're, you're, yeah. you're looking at the ancestors of the people that eventually entered enter the new world and that's that's cool to me like where where everything i've done in my career all started in, in eurasia yeah i think that's that's exciting i think beyond that i, I love geology and like geoarchaeology and i would i would get a huge kick out of studying early hominin sites in in africa and trying to understand the geology and where you might find those hominin bones um like we talked briefly about the idea that hominins were drawn to these cave systems as kind of thermoregulatory uh, refugia. I really would love to, to test some of those hypotheses using kind of modern temperature data and modern yeah. animal behavior and things like that. Yeah, that's something I've been dwelling on a lot since I uh, uh, read that prediction in your dissertation. Yeah, th- no, there's, you find hominin bones in these caves all the time. Like that's that cradle of humanity region where they're finding all those, all those early, those like uh, Australopithecines and then the... Uh, the uh rising star cave what they call that one uh a, i'm blanking right now homo naledi naledi yeah where they found naledi you know the idea has been that like you're getting a biased view of this because it's really the only place where bones preserve so the thought was like yeah is this more people really living in here right. or do they, they really getting... care about these caves all that much or is that just the one place they survive exactly yeah yeah i i really want to answer i want that question answered like i it, in my in my view they were preferentially using these cave systems and that's yeah. why their bones yeah. are ending up there in like really large quantities but yeah so yeah are hominins basically are they the are they the cave bears of <laughs> of south africa right <laughs> or or are they just like you know the only reason we find them there is it's the only place they preserve yeah i think that's a big question that needs answered because if you know if hominins are using caves basically as like a, a central place foraging like node that says a lot about early early hominin behavior and i I don't think that question has been adequately addressed although i I mean i should caveat all this by saying this is really not my world like i i'm a total interloper into all this old world stuff (laughs) i i love it but 
like I said, I, I do too much field work in Wyoming to really <laughs> to really devote myself completely to to reading every Journal of Human Evolution paper that gets published. <laughs> that is one of the things, though, that I've I, that kind of drew me to Paleo Indian archaeology in particular for uh, work in North America is, is that um, you know by comparison with like say if you're you're an expert in you know the ancestral Puebloans in the Southwest. Now you're really you're going to be working in you know you're going to be working in New Mexico and Arizona and Utah and Colorado for your entire career, but but with Paleo Indian archaeology, it, it seems like it does give you uh, a little more of a a right to uh, step into another lane and think about these analogous and similar patterns of human life in in other places. Yeah, I, I think it's. It's because it shared Paleo-Indian archaeology shares a lot of characteristics with with old world Paleolithic archaeology. Yeah, big yeah. game hunters. Yeah, um, living at a time when the Ice Age, when when, when Ice Age still existed, and and also Paleo-Indian archaeology is really focused on it, it, these sites are buried really deeply. Uh, there's a lot of time between when they were deposited and now. So you have to have a really firm grasp on geology and geomorphology and <laughs> yeah, and that kind yeah. of thing that you really don't when you're basically a culture historian. That's kind of why I th- I think there's a lot of congruence between and in, in, in interest between Paleo Indian archaeology and people that are doing stuff in in the old world. Yeah. To finish up, if you had to recommend to people three sites to learn more about Paleo Indian archaeology in Wyoming, what should they read? <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. Good question. I think the first book you should buy is the Agate Basin monograph. Uh-huh. The Agate Basin site. Um, it's a phenomenal archaeological site, but the book that was produced on it by George Frizen is, I think, widely regarded probably one of the finest uh, monographs of any site ever produced. It's just beautifully illustrated. The writing's great. The analyses of everything were really groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, I think that's the first thing, the Agate Basin book. Um, you, you definitely need to learn about the Hell Gap site. Uh, the Hell Gap site is, it has one of the more comprehensive records of Paleo-Indian archaeology that exists. Your it's, work has been going on there for decades, right? Yeah, the Harvard dug it in the 60s, and now uh, Marcel Kornfeld's been, and Mary Lou Larson have been excavating there since mid-90s, a couple, couple decades. Uh, um, so the Hell Gap site's special because it's this, it's the confluence of a lot of raw material uh, and a really good depositional setting and a good place to live. And so mm-hmm. people spanning 13,000 to you know, 8,000 years ago camped in the same place over and over again, the same spot, the exact same spot. And so it's one of the only places in North America where you have that Paleo-Indian period in stratified context. Um, so that, that's a really important site to know about. And number three... The Laprell site. I mean, the Laprell Clovis site is shaping up to be one of the most important archaeological sites in North America. I don't think that's over overstating anything, especially for the Paleo Indian period. Just the the clarity we have on that event that happened almost thirteen thousand years ago is pretty unparalleled. Where we can actually see activity areas and piles of flakes that represent flint napping episodes and houses yeah. and a mammoth and all this fauna that accompanies it bone needles and beads like an ochre stain it's just it's just remarkable and you know we've been working there since 2014 and it just keeps getting better every year there just keeps being surprising insights 
And uh, the little bit of literature that's been produced on that site so far is definitely worth, worth looking at. Yeah, the Prell is a great note to end on. I would second that. Thanks for taking the time, Spencer. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for uh, coming up with great questions. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. Until next time. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash Sebastian Weatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. Show notes are also available on my website where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.